there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there. Due to popular demand, I'll be running another beta reader matchup in July, with the deadline to register being the 31st of July and the actual matches happening on the 1st of August. If you're looking for once-off beta readers for your work in progress, or perhaps for other writers who might become writing group partners down the line, then this is the matchup for you. I try to the very best of my ability to match you up with writers in the same time zone and who are working in the same genre as you. And I'm always so blown away by the incredible feedback after each matchup session. I'm also pairing this one with a fundraising initiative for an awesome literary cause. So you'll be improving your own work, the work of other writers, and helping South African author Coletto Mapai finish her MFA at the University of Cape Town at the same time. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, go to the beta reader page to get more info and to register. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ship No One Tells You About Writing. Before we dive into today's queries, Carly has an exciting announcement to make. If you didn't see it on socials, you are going to hear about it now. We have hit, wait for it, 
2 million downloads. That is 2 million downloads. So sincerely, thank you so much. Thank you to every single listener, everyone who has downloaded, everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All of these things keep us going. Obviously keeps the podcast going, but emotionally keeps us afloat as well. Another thing that keeps us going is our Kofi subscribers. Less than 1% of our listeners donate or have donated over the years. And while it's certainly not a requirement, as you know, the donations give you access to our written notes and we're planning some really special episodes for Kofi subscribers only this fall. Kofi donations go towards things like paying our audio editors who we deeply need to keep the quality of this show as high as possible. So thank you to all of our wonderful listeners and supporters. Awesome, Carly. Thank you so much. It is an amazing, epic milestone to reach. And we were doing a lot of celebration on the side. So if you don't follow us on our socials, make a plan to do that and you'll be up to speed on the latest announcements. Okay, so today we're kicking it back old school to our old format, just as a throwback. So we will have our query letters and then afterwards we will have our author interview. Right, Carly, will you kick us off with that first query letter? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thank you for your podcast, which continues to entertain, inspire, and help develop my craft. I am submitting my 90,000-word single POV debut novel, Washed Up, a coming-of-age story which will intrigue readers who enjoyed the cross-continental narrative in We Are All Birds of Uganda and the emotional journey in The Light Through the Leaves. John is stuck in a small town yearning for adventure and the chance to make the world a better place. His opportunity arrives when he is invited to teach English on the island of Madagascar. The island provides a stunning beach, delicious food, and even the possibility of romance. But whilst showing off, a terrible accident occurs and John is fired in disgrace. Too ashamed to go back to his parents, he tries to build a life in London but ends up experiencing homelessness and having his tent set on fire as he sleeps. As he faces another night of danger, a kind man comes to his rescue. The stranger tells him that the world and the people in it are terrible, and the only way of surviving is to stick with him. But after pressuring John into increasingly dangerous, illegal, and morally dubious acts, the stranger doesn't seem so kind after all. John is forced to decide whether he will take responsibility for his actions and forgive himself, and whether he will try to escape before he is dragged into a crime which he cannot return from. Over the past 10 years, I have supported international education projects, set up a food surplus cafe as a volunteer, and worked with people experiencing homelessness. I wanted to explore the complexities that come with trying to make the world a better place. Please see my first five pages below and let me know if I can send you the full manuscript. Yours sincerely, Ben Whitcomb. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was our word count there and what was your take on that? So our word count on this one is 319 words. All right. So just to start off with, our 90,000 is kind of written out in language. So I would always put like 90,000 in terms of the actual numbers. That was something that would stand out for me. So in terms of the hook, so we have the cross-continental narrative is kind of the only hook we have in that first paragraph. So I would probably add some more adjectives or description to the cross-continental narrative to kind of build that out a bit so it is kind of demonstrated as the hook. The Light Through the Leaves is a client book of mine, so obviously wonderful to see that here, and I will I will wait to see if it if it indeed is a, is a comp. So our next paragraph starts out kind of generic, right? Like the small town yearning for adventure. So I have some questions like why him? Why now? So what? That sort of thing. For example, in Light Through the Leaves, we have a really like major moment that kicks it off. Uh, a woman leaves an infant in a car seat by the side of the road by accident as she's kind of loading the family into the car after a hike in the woods and then she goes back and they're not there. 
right? And so like this is the thing that kicks off this whole cross-continental narrative. And we have this inciting incident. So I'm not really seeing kind of the depth of an inciting incident here. So I'm kind of trying to figure out exactly what that is. It feels kind of passive. And I want to know what it is that's going to going to kick this all off. This is a shorter query letter, right? Not that it's too short, but it came in at that 319. And so I think there's some opportunities to build some things out. Like it says the possibility of romance. Well, I'm like, with who? <laughs> like what? Like where is this coming? It's out of nowhere. It also says a terrible accident occurs. What is the accident? How serious is it? Is he in the accident? Are other people in the accident? What are the stakes here? These are things I'm trying to figure out. And I kind of, I mean, a central point of this obviously is this idea of somebody experiencing homelessness, right? And so I, I think in order for us to really understand the exploration of this, we need to figure out like what is so bad about his life with his parents that he would rather experience homelessness than try to make amends or like find a friend to live with. Like, again, if we're going to walk the path and try to walk in the footsteps of this character, I think we really need to see how exactly this kind of unravels. Um, and I really would love to see that in the query letter a little bit stronger. Overall, the growth just really feels pretty internal, which feels more literary. You know, it's, it definitely seems like a coming of age literary narrative, but I really just, you know, suggest that there's some opportunities here because it's shorter to kind of delve in a little bit and give us a little bit more description of, you know, what, what's happening. And in terms of the author bio paragraph, so it's, again, it's a little vague, right? So if we aren't going to have sensitivity readers, and, and maybe there is, and, and it just wasn't mentioned here, then I'm going to assume that you are intimately familiar in some capacity with this world. And so we have some, again, some wording that suggests that it worked with people experiencing homelessness. Is it for the sake of this podcast? You don't want to kind of get into details, but I really would like to know, as I said, how intimately familiar you are with this world. I think that would help a lot. And also mentioning where you live. I think it's the UK, but I would really like to know because it also helps me understand if you're going to be writing in UK English or US English and that type of thing. It kind of helps frame my understanding of, of the words to come. Thank you, Carly. I know that when I was living in South Africa and I was querying agents at that point, I I never wanted to tell any agents that I was in South Africa in case they were like, hell no, that's too far away. I don't want to represent you. And maybe at that time that was true because this was many years ago, people. But these days, definitely not a thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the this day and age, I mean, the internet, you know, Zoom takes us so far. So I don't think anybody is really that far away. And knowing where somebody lives helps me kind of, as I said, understand what type of language they might be using or dialect or that, that type of thing. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So we meet our main character having breakfast with his parents. Seems like an only child. So it's just him and his parents sitting down. It's a very tense situation. So very quiet. The mum says, I've been up all night. He's kind of like pushing his breakfast around his plate. And she says, I couldn't sleep. I simply couldn't sleep thinking about what you told us. And then we kind of figure out, okay, what it is that he had said to them was he announced that he was going to go off to Madagascar for this volunteer teaching opportunity. And then we kind of slip back into some internal thoughts, kind of explaining the gap year that this student is going to go on, that this boy, child, man is going to go on and how his parents didn't support it. They wanted him to stay local and kind of do some type of local gap year work where he really wanted to, to go abroad. And they were definitely had a big blow up about it. He also had to tell them in these pages that not only is this volunteer and it's far away, but it actually costs money. It seems to cost a few thousand dollars for him actually to go off and do this. And so they were like, where is this money going to come from? Have a big fight. They kind of all storm off. And then we end these pages with the mum knocking on the door with some hot chocolate presumably to amend the situation. Wonderful. Okay, so what was your take on them? 
There was incredible amounts of specificity in these pages, which was so reassuring to see after I felt like the query letter didn't really demonstrate that as much as I wanted to. Really on a line level, some really, really great moments here. I really felt like I was at the kitchen table in this extremely tense situation. I made a couple notes, you know, with, with literary fiction, every word is important. So I made a couple notes of like, I don't know if this is the exact word to use here. You know, for example, the, the toast on the plate was described as ashen. And I'm like, well, ash is gray and toast is beige, right? So like very subtle things, right? But with literary fiction, we have to be very particular about every every single word choice. But there's some really, really lovely, lovely moments here. There's also a really great balance of how much information to share at any given time, right? Because the mom says, I simply couldn't sleep thinking about what you told us. But we don't go into like, here's what he told her, right? We like, we sit with that for a minute and we let that digest. And it's again, all the tension in the room builds and then we kind of figure out what had happened. So the attention to detail here is really, really great. We have everything from he heard the plop, plop, plop of three sugars, you know, in the bowl, like these really, really wonderful, specific sensory moments that I think were were excellent. An example, another example of a line I liked was the fug of quiet was slowly leaking in, saturating the kitchen until it suffocated them. Like gas you couldn't smell that was just sitting there waiting to blow the whole kitchen apart. Beautiful, really, really, really great work. Great writing there. I really, really enjoyed that. And the fight felt real, you know, between the family members. That kind of like a bit guarded British family dynamic was definitely there. I did feel like we slipped too far back into the past. Once we did kind of figure out what it is that they were kind of fighting about, we do kind of slip into the past to explain the gap year and, and again, why he isn't doing the things that his parents want to do. So I would keep that tension a bit more at the surface, keep it in the present a little bit more. But overall, I think the pages were stronger than the query letter. All right, wonderful. Let's go to our second query letter. And I'm going to ask Carly to read that for us again. Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lyra, I love the podcast and all the amazing advice you give to authors because you might be looking for a compelling memoir that dives into our struggles as women, finding our place in the world and how we deal with the stories we were told as children. I'm sending you my memoir, The Thin of the Wedge, which is made up of 18 essays that chronically follow my life. It is about being a displaced woman who falls in love too easily and consistently questions her place in the world. At 87,000 words, it's an unflinching description of debasing struggles with self-worth, inherited depression, complex relationships with my parents and my children and my ex-husband, eating disorders and single mothering. The memoir culminates with an essay about a final act of desperation that takes place in the jungles of Costa Rica among shamans and contains healing through what can only be described as magic. I believe this memoir will appeal to women of all ages. With a misguided bravado, I set off from my homeland to live in America, to date the wrong men, to work on ranches and sailboats, morphing into other people's lives as you do when you're young, and then becoming a mother of twins and struggling with depression and eating disorders. The final essay is about rejecting pharmaceuticals and discovering who I truly am through ingesting plant medicine will appeal to anyone who has struggled to find meaning in their life. There's a theme of ancestral ties and an affinity with nature through the essays as well as despair, but beneath all of the ingloriousness is a sense of humor. I am a survivor. I am a native Australian, deeply connected to the natural world and the world of spirits and ancestral ties. I am a horse trainer, an overthinker, and a lost soul. I'm an adventurer with a twisted sense of humor. I am a romantic and a fierce wolf. I'm a person who has tried almost everything as a way of living my truth, and I am the person to take readers on this journey through the depth of despair and failed relationships, sailing across an ocean to the jungle to heal. I have a master's in writing from Johns Hopkins, and I've published fiction in the Gettysburg Review. Three of the essays from The Thin Edge of the Wedge were published in periodicals. 
the Chattahaga Review published the essay Patterson's Curse. The first essay of my memoir called Ghosts is in the fall issue of Crazy Horse and the Potomac Review recently published a later essay called How Are Her Spirits? My memoir fits somewhere between Wild Game by Adrian Brodeur and Deep Creek by Pam Houston. However, unlike these two books, The Thin Edge of the Wedge combines a strong sense of rural Australia and the veracity of the American West. As I grow and travel, I cleave to the things we believe are true until we find out they are not. It is about love and the strength to move forward and finally hope. I have pasted the five pages here and would be happy to send the full manuscript for your review. Thank you for your time. Georgia English. Thank you so much, Carly. Okay, Cece, we'll start with you. That seems like quite a wordy query letter. What's the word count there? The word count is 548 words. So it's a little on the lengthy side. It's true. Okay, here are my thoughts. Right now, you have the title on the first paragraph, the word count on the second, and then the comps on the very last. I would put all this metadata into one paragraph. I personally like it up top, right? Like the very first paragraph. But, you know, different agents have different styles. So, of course, you know, it's your decision. But I would put it all into one paragraph. I think that makes it really just more helpful for us to know what we're reading. Remember, agents get tons of query letters, right? So you want to make sure that yours is as easy to read as possible. In terms of the plot paragraph, I actually think it should start with the sentence that reads, with a misguided bravado, because that's the sentence that has things happening, right? Like before that, it feels very big picture. It feels very... You know, my relationships with my parents and children and eating disorders and single mothering. And don't get me wrong, like these are all big things, but they are big picture things. They're, they're more on the vague side. So when I hear about your specific journeys, when I hear about things like, you know, working on ranches and sailboats and becoming a mother of twins, that, that has more specificity to it. So it's a bit more appealing. I also think you need a major dramatic question in your plot paragraph. And I don't, I don't see one. With Wild Game, you know, which is one of your comps, the major dramatic question is very clearly defined. You can take a look at the pitch copy. You can listen to me rave about Wild Game. You know, but the whole will they or won't they, will she or won't she question is, will she keep her mother's secret or will she accidentally or perhaps intentionally spill it out, thus destroying her family? It's, it's just very clear to understand what the stakes are because the major dramatic question is so, so clear. So I would work on that too. I also feel like, you know, and I say this with all the love, the paragraph that starts with I'm a survivor, it's so beautiful and echoey. I would, however, keep that either for the pages or for an essay you're writing about this, some in some other place. The query letter really, it, it, it needs to be super tight and, you know, appealing to the reader. And this is more about, you know, your mission as a person. So I don't think it belongs in the query letter. You'll, you're also on the long side. So it's nice to have an opportunity to cut. Yeah, those are my notes. Carly, what'd you think about it? All right. So yes, I also felt like it was long. And I would also call this a memoir in essays, right? And to me, like a memoir in essays is kind of different than a memoir. Because with essays, you're allowed to kind of skip around a little bit, right? And so... I don't know. I feel like that also gives this person a little bit of freedom. You know, my favorite memoir and essays is on a single topic and it is from Megan O'Connell. It's called, and now we have everything on motherhood before I was ready. And so it's a memoir and essays that's very specific. And when we have a memoir and essay that is very sweeping, you know, at some points we've listed, you know, the author lists like everything it's covering, self-worth, depression, complex relationships, ex-husbands, eating disorder, single mothering. Like to me, that is so much. And then we get to the point where the final essay is about rejecting pharmaceuticals and in discovering who I truly am, you know, and the whole plant medicine thing. And I'm like, is that the whole hook of the book? Like, obviously we're working towards that, but like, are we planting seeds towards that? To me, that's the big 
kind of more unique thing here because to me like to be really blunt you know there's a couple sweeping statements here where it says like you know this is for all women or people who you know experience all of these things will also experience this and these these are the types of things that just aren't true simply right like we we have to I, I don't think most memoirs sell because somebody's relatable. I think most memoirs sell because it's a completely different experience outside of the reader's experience in most cases, you know, like, for example, made or wild, right? It's like these things that happen completely differently and we get to experience that through through the work and the writing. So these are some challenges that I find with this one and the framing, I think, still has a, lot, a long way to come. I think it sounds super interesting and clearly a really lyrical writer, but I, I don't think we're focused yet. I don't I don't think we're there. Thank you, Carly. Cece, are you able to give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? Yeah, so we have the protagonist. She is at her grandparents' sheep farm in Australia. They go there whenever they can. It's a few hours away from Sydney. And we learn about her family. It's very big picture and it moves through through her consciousness explaining this her family situation. So we see the fictional horse she's reading about and how she really believes this horse is real and the horse could be in the farm. And we see that, you know, her family allows her this sort of imaginative thought. The we see photographs about her family. And we learn about her family through photographs that she's that she's taking a look at. We learned that when her grandpa died, her uncle came. Her uncle, by the way, who looks like Elvis Presley, which I thought was a really good detail, her uncle came to live in the farm. And then her grandmother moved into a smaller house and her her uncle's wife, her aunt, you know, now runs the big house we learn that she feels like an outsider in terms of her sisters her sisters are are older and so she you know she wishes she could be on the inside but she's on the outside we learn that her father feels that her uncle doesn't have the temperament to be a farmer because he doesn't have the patience to understand that there are things outside his control like the weather so there's a lot of um, moving through the family to understand the family dynamic situation thank you Cece okay Carly would you like to give us your thoughts on those opening pages and then we'll hear what Cece things. So my main takeaway here is that it's all told in past tense, I believe. I'm just double checking as I scan through here, right? And so to me, it felt very distant. It's all really like a past recollection. And I really liked the opening. There was there was a line here about before leaving the house, I told my grandmother what I was looking for. And to her credit, she did not dissuade me, but it sent me off with two hard boiled eggs and an apple saying that anything, even Thaura with the silver mane and tail and his high pitched whinny could appear if I spent enough time looking. And I really love that like whimsicalness of that section. And then because we're all in past tense, we're kind of going to recounting like who owns the farm and some family stuff. And I don't know, I felt really lost and started to develop some disinterest to the family ancestry that I didn't have a vested interest in. And I liked that kind of whimsical coming of age part a lot more. And so I that was the part that connected with me the most there. Thank you, Carly. Cece, your take on that? Yeah, I'll echo what Carly said, and I'll add that to me, one of the things that's working really well is how observant the protagonist is in any relationship-driven story. This is something that I cover in my Writing Relationships webinar on July 20th. In every relationship-driven story, you need the protagonist to be observing other people so that their dynamic and their interaction can actually be elevated into things like curiosity seeds and plot points. So that's really great, right? Like she does notice things that I don't think someone who is not observant would would pick up on. What's missing is the next step, which is when you observe these things, how do they affect your life? It's not centered on her experience as the protagonist. And it needs to be because we need to connect with you. 
We need to connect with you as a person more than we need to connect with, you know, your grandparents, your aunt, your uncle, your sisters. So I think it's just about deepening that connection. I also wonder if this is the best essay to start with. And if it is, if it shouldn't start with the death of your grandfather, because that really is what set in motion the whole power shift at the farm. And that's really interesting to me, you know, like power shifts and power imbalances that that's usually very curiosity inducing. So that's also something that you might want to focus on. There were so many, many great lines. Like I really loved the line about her observing that her father thought that her uncle had the wrong temperament for farming. It really stood out to me, you know, noticing these dynamics. I just feel like it maybe needs tweaking in terms of where you start exactly and how deep you go. Thank you, Cece. Yep. And as a three times published author who is working on a, I don't know how many at the novel at the moment, and is circling chapter one like a mofo, panel beating it into shape and banging your head against the desk, I feel your pain. So uh, this is something that, that happens at every step of the process. Right, so now we're moving on to the third query, which is an interesting one today. So we have a longtime listener of the podcast, Marissa, who's kept a record of all of her 16 query letter drafts since the very first one, which was written on the 1st of January, 2021. She wrote her second draft after listening to our first segment of Books with Hooks on February 25th of that year. And she thought it would be helpful for listeners to see the evolution of a query letter over time while learning from the podcast. So she compiled her drafts in order and added dates and a couple of notes for each. And Marissa has been kind enough to make these available to all of our Kofi supporters. So for our Kofi supporters, you can go onto the platform today and find the evolution of all 16 of those query letters. The one that Cece is looking at today is number 15, because of course, Marissa revised again and tried to sneak that one in. But we do ask that you don't resubmit after the first one you've sent us, because we unfortunately just don't have the time in the admin to be able to accommodate them. Right, Cece, so will you read draft 15 for us? Dear The Shit Team, as a longtime listener, I look forward to The Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast each Thursday, especially Bianca's author interviews. And I have also learned so much from all the webinars, Instagram posts, and September's virtual retreat. Everything You Can't Control is the memoir, 82,000 words, of the darkest and brightest time of my life and grapples with key issues in modern mental health. Channeling the dark humor of Zach McDermott's Gorilla and the Bird and mirroring the mother-daughter relationship dynamics of Jeanette McCurdy's I'm Glad My Mom Died, this book would appeal to fans of Jenny Lawson. The story pushes the mental health conversation into new and deeper territory, highlighting the injustices faced in our personal lives and the workplace. At 31 years old, I had a devoted husband, a teaching job I loved, and a beautiful apartment in the Bronx, until one day, trapped on a flight at 36,000 feet, I had a psychotic break. My therapist, diagnosed a mixed state, considered the most dangerous type of bipolar episode, and recommended hospitalization. I refused. Living at the border between laughter, rage, and tears, I battled to keep my marriage and career intact. When the episode derailed my life and relationships. My family coerced me into the hospital, where I reevaluated my beliefs and examined the choices I'd made, fighting my way back to reality and self-acceptance. With the rise of self-care apps and therapy by text, readers are more aware than ever of disorders like bipolar. 
but they rarely understand what those diagnoses mean. The fact is none of us have complete control over our minds, and a story like mine could happen to anyone. I want to convey the truth of what having bipolar is like and show the many people who are diagnosed every day they are not alone. In my second career as a recovery specialist, supporting individuals improving their mental health, I'm uniquely positioned to delve into the discrimination I faced when bipolar disorder forced me to leave my previous job. I've had speaking engagements with both the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and NAMI, the largest mental health organization in the U.S., consulted for the Mount Sinai Suicide Research and Prevention Lab, and been interviewed for articles in Women's Health, Very Well Mind, Stat News, and more. My BA is from Harvard College and MA from Teachers College, Columbia University. I recently completed a year of study with a redacted memoirist who is eager to blurb the book. My writing, including an excerpt of the story, has been featured in Slate, Hypertext, Catapult, Brevity Blog, and elsewhere. Thank you for your time, Marissa Russello. Content note. These pages explore aspects of mental health, including depictions of suicidal thoughts and traumatic events. Thank you, Cece. Okay, let's start with word count. So this is clocking in at 460 words. There's opportunity to cut, especially since I think the plot can be further developed, which we'll get to in a second. And I also think there's a paragraph that can be cut, but let's get to it. So we love our community. Thank you for the lovely shout out. When it comes to the first paragraph, the hook right now is a memoir of the darkest and brightest times of my life that grapples with key issues in modern mental health. I'm wondering if we can make this more hooky, like more salesy. When we're talking about a memoir written by a non-famous person, the reality is that there isn't a built-in interest in someone's life. So if Britney Spears writes a novel and she pitches that as the brightest and darkest times of my life, then that's immediately interesting because everyone wants to know about Britney Spears. But when a normal person like like me, like you, like everyone else writes a memoir, it's important to really make sure that the hook is appealing to the reader, right? Like right now we have key issues with mental health. That's a little bit more on the vague side. So I would just specify that. I love the Zach McDermott comp. Gorilla and the Bird is so well written. Oh my gosh, that memoir is amazing. And I like that you specified that it's mirroring the mother-daughter relationship dynamics of I'm glad my mom died because if you hadn't made that distinction I would have been like hmm, I'm not sure that's a good comp because she's a famous person but again like you are saying that it's just a mother-daughter relationship and then you have another title that is perfectly adequate in terms of like the person not being famous before he wrote the book so that makes sense as well when it comes to the plot paragraph right like the thing I want to see is is the journey and the journey seems very internal I'm not seeing how it's going to be curiosity inducing for the readers. So for example, with Gorilla and the Bird, the inciting incident is that he's convinced that he's in the Truman Show, after which he gets arrested and committed. And so those things are a bit more dramatic. And so they tend to pique curiosity to the average human brain, an arrest being committed. And then we get lots of teasers in the plot point. He's tackled by guards. There's this new relationship. There's a will he or won't he. And so I'm wondering if there's a way to position this with more external plot and less internal journey to show an external change that's not just going back to the way things were. It could be as simple as trying to specify instead of saying laughter, rage, and tears, you know, specifying what specific struggles you were dealing with, again, in a way that is appealing to the reader. When it comes to the paragraph that says, with the rise of self-care apps and therapy by text, I love that mission. 
that mission's amazing, right? Like, again, please save it. Please save it for your author interviews. Save it for your talk with your agent, your talk with your editor. Don't think it belongs in the query letter. With novels and with memoirs, readers come for the entertainment. They stay with the education and evolution and enlightenment. Those things stay with us and they're so precious, but they come for the entertainment. That's that's why they open up a book. That's why they keep reading to find out what's going to happen. And that has to be something that, again, is curiosity inducing. So I'll also say that your author paragraph is very impressive. I absolutely love it. I love the sensitivity of the content note. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So she's on a plane with her husband. She's on the aisle seat. Her husband's in the middle. And then there's a woman in the window seat. And her husband's afraid of flying. And she's used to this. This is normal for her. So, you know, he pops two Xanaxes and, you know, tries to do something on his phone. And it's just not not there for conversation or anything. And she is eager for conversation. So she leans in like across from him and starts talking to the woman who's on the window seat. And the woman seems really nice. She seems perfectly nice and lovely. And she thinks to herself, you know, I'm lucky because perhaps she, you know, I could be seated next to a person who isn't so lovely. And... We know that she's heading home to New York where her life is stuck on pause. She knows she was taking time off from work to deal with depression and panic attacks. And she didn't know if she could go back to teaching if she wasn't feeling so great about herself. So two hours later, she wakes up with a migraine. She has on an eye mask. And, you know, it feels like the sun is blazing in her, on her eyelids. And she talks to her husband, like, what's going on? And he goes, well, you know, the woman next to us has the window open. And they have this whole conversation. And then he asks her to close the window. You know, the woman's a little confused because she has an eye mask on, you know, but he asks again. So she, she shuts it down halfway. At least it's something. You know, later on, she wakes up again and the similar interaction happens. The woman isn't being so accommodating. And at the very end, you know, she can't deal with the pain. And she yells, like, why is she doing this too much? She shrieks this and throws her hands up. And her husband's like, Marissa, people are looking. It's like a whisper shout. And the child goes, Daddy, why is that lady crying? Is she okay? Wow. Okay. So, yeah, we're expecting a lot of emotionality, a lot of interiority, a lot from this kind of scene. So so what was your take on that? Here's what I love about these pages. I was never confused about anything related to external scene. I knew exactly who was talking. I knew exactly where everyone was sitting. I knew what gestures were being done. I knew the logistics of things. I understood the tone in which things were being said. It's very clean, very polished. And I know how hard it is to do this. It When you read it, it's it's just very clear right? Like in that level of clarity, it's a lot of hard work. There's two things that I think need improvement. One is a minor thing. And this is a plausibility issue that I got hung up on. And I always get hung up on plausibility issues. Like if you've been on a plane, like I feel like it's fair to say that a lot of us have, planes are cramped. She is having a full dialogue with her husband. She's on the aisle seat. He's in the middle about this woman who's right next to her husband. I don't believe that neither of them wouldn't think she can hear us, right? At least she would think that. So I'm wondering, like, were they texting each other as opposed to, like, were they were they writing this down on a phone? Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, how could they not at least think that she could hear them? Because this is very much framed, like, they would have a conversation and then one of them would reach out to the woman. And then the woman would be surprised by the ask as though she hadn't heard their dialogue. And I'm not buying that that would happen. Like, in order for that to be true, I don't know. They would almost need telepathy. So that... That, that just had me thinking, like, how is that possible? It's a plane. And then the second thing, right now, 
this is reading more like a factual account in scene. Again, very polished scene, but it's focusing on facts. It's focusing on what happened, what was said, what her life is back in New York. It's very factual. And when it comes to memoir, you really want to remember that your, your job is not to explain what happened. Your job is to hook the reader. It's the same with a novel. Your job is to really grab the reader's attention and make them feel, I'm so curious. I need to know what's going to happen next. And I'm not sensing that because there wasn't any curiosity seeds. So I think that maybe one of these two pieces of advice might help you. Assuming my notes resonate with you, either start in a different place because the plane scene just isn't compelling, not enough things happened. I know it was a big deal in terms of your episode, but it's not being framed right now in a way that makes me feel curious. Or go deeper into the plane scene. If you're convinced this is a place to start, which I get, like chronologically, logically, it makes sense. Where's the depth, you know? Like, can we please get curiosity seeds about her relationship with, with her husband, whose name I believe is Justin? Can we please get curiosity seeds about how she feels in terms of asking someone for things? Like, is she thinking about her mom? Is her mom's voice in her ear saying, be a people pleaser, be a good girl? I don't know. Can we get curiosity seeds is what I'm saying. Can we get seduction? At the end of the day, a storyteller's job is to seduce. It's, it's cerebral seduction. And I wanted to be seduced. I wanted to feel those curiosity seeds. And right now I'm not getting them. So again, if this is all resonating with you, I would either start at a different place or really dig in. I did ask a whole bunch of questions. You'll notice my marginalia where I was like, maybe there's opportunity here to go deep. Maybe you can explain what's going on in this, this aspect of your relationship. So hopefully that is helpful. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you so much. Remember that our aim on this podcast is a rather weird one. We want you to get to the point where you don't need us anymore, where you actually stop listening to the podcast because you don't need our advice, because you have evolved and advanced so much that you get to that point. And it is our hope for each and every one of you that you get there and we will be cheering you on at that finishing line. I just want to add to that. I love that aim. And however, I spoke with an acquisitions editor last week who told me he asked for a call with me. And he's like, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I don't get enough conversations about storytelling, even though he, again, is an acquisitions editor at a major publishing house, one of the big five. He's like, we don't talk enough about stories. We end up talking about business. And I love that I tune into your podcast and I get to hear all these great stories and these great insights. And so maybe you will still be listening to us, even though you won't meet Amazing. Us. <laughs> Shout out to this acquisitions editor, whoever you are. We love you. Right. Let's now go to today's guest. Hey, you. Yes, you. I am talking to you writers who are figuring out how to exist on the internet. It's Carly Waters here. And on July 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'll be teaching my popular course, Being an Author on the Internet. Best practices, learning the difference between brand versus platform and building your literary community. Being an author on the internet is part of the job of publishing a book. But how exactly can you use your time on socials wisely? Where should you be investing your time for where you're at in your career? How do you build a literary community that will show up for you when it's time to launch that book, podcast, show, webinar series, and more? Sign up at carlywaters.com slash webinar for the two-hour workshop. Everyone gets the slides and recording. Just make sure you sign up in advance. I don't sell my courses after. We'll cover. What's the difference between author brand versus author platform? What publishers will do for you versus what you have to do on your own? Where to focus your energy for where you're at in your career? How to get fans and convert them into book buyers? How to create online content that people will want to engage with and share? What modern readers want from the authors they read? And should you start a newsletter or a podcast? 
Sign up at carlywaters.com slash webinars and learn how to be an author on the internet. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, it's CC. And before we introduce today's guest, I just wanted to remind you that I'm offering a brand new webinar called Writing Relationships, Developing Character Connections in Your Story on July 20th at 8 p.m. Easter time via Zoom. Whether you write rom-com, memoir, thriller, literary fiction, or anything else, knowing how to introduce and develop relationships between your protagonist and other characters and elements in your story is essential. So join me to unpack 
all that goes into this element of storytelling. And as usual, we'll have lots of slides dedicated to examples so you can see the theory come to life. The recording will be made available whether you're able to attend live or not, but only if you sign up in advance. To find out more, head to my Twitter page or Instagram and check out the link in my bio. Okay, so it's time to talk about today's guest. And I'm going to read her bio. I'm going to do the proper thing. But before I do, I want to say that, well, spoiler alert, it's Andy Bartz. You know her, you've read her books, you know that we're all huge fans over here at the podcast of Andy's. And not too long ago, Andy was a speaker at our retreat, and I was lucky enough to moderate that conversation. As I was introducing her, I said, in front of everyone, by the way, that I was such a big fan of her book, and I was talking about We Were Never Here, but I'm a big fan of all her books. And I said, well, Andy, if we're ever in an elevator together, I'm going to have to tamper with the elevator so that we'll be stuck because I wanted to have her undivided attention. I wanted to pick her brain. Now, I could have said, hey, Andy, next time I'm in Brooklyn, I'm just going to invite you over for coffee because I'd like to pick your brain. I could have asked for a call. I could have done so many non-bananas things, but I didn't. And maybe you're thinking that it's because I have a flair for the dramatic and you're not wrong, but I don't think that's it. I think it's because Andy's presence inspired me. You see, she writes novels that are twisty and more than a little dark and kind of naughty and with protagonists that are so inventive and come up with all sorts of situations that are very unusual. And so I think her presence made me say that. So I'm not blaming myself. I am blaming Andy. Her books are super fun, super well-written, filled with amazing surprises, interiority, unforgettable characters, and will make your eyes pop revelation. We talk all the time about learning how to read as a writer, so her books are the perfect novels to do that with. So now, off to our formal introduction. Andrea Bartz, a Brooklyn-based journalist, is the New York Times best-selling author of We Were Never Here, The Herd, and The Lost Night. Her work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Mary Claire, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, Women's Health, Martha Stewart Living, Elle, and many other outlets. And she's held editorial positions at Glamour, Psychology Today, and Self, among other publications. Please join me in welcoming Andy Bartz. Yay! Yay, thank you for that. Wow, I love that my, you know, messed up mind is inspiring other people to be equally just bananas with their, uh, <laughs> their interactions. I love it. Right? Making the world a more messed up place in a safe way. Through stories, through novels. We're containing it in novels. Exactly. I have this theory that the reason that thriller authors are like the nicest people you'll ever meet is because we all have this really healthy outlet for all of our deepest, darkest, you know, shame, secrets, desires, revenge, all of the above. It's great. It works out great. I love that theory. And speaking of which, tell us the premise of The Spare Room, your latest novel. Absolutely. The Spare Room follows a down-on-her-luck woman who early in the pandemic finds herself locked in a new apartment in a new city with a fiance who has just called off their wedding. So she's friendless, she's jobless, and sort of the only bright thing in her life is this newly rekindled friendship with somebody she knew from childhood, who's now this glamorous, best-selling romance author. We all, you know, during the pandemic had some weird rekindled friendships, right? So this woman invites her to come live with her and invites our, our down-on-her-luck protagonist, you know, to live with her and her husband in their mansion in Virginia. And she accepts the invitation and, you know, leaves her old life behind. And 
While she's there, she finds herself falling for both of her enchanting hosts. And much to her surprise, they feel the same way and open up their marriage for her. And at first, this, you know, sexy new world is everything she thought she wanted. Until she discovers that this actually isn't the first time that they've invited someone into their marriage and the last woman is missing. She begins to wonder if they might actually be dangerous and worse, if she might be next. So it's really a, you know, sexy domestic suspense that is full of darkness and twists. And it's a bit of a departure from my earlier books, but I had so much fun writing it. So it was a departure and I for a few reasons, one of them being the sexy element you mentioned. And we get a lot of submissions on the podcast by writers who are kind of trying to, I guess, add a little steam factor into their pages, which, hey, we appreciate. I, I am of the theory, though, that the mechanics of sex, not sexy. Like, maybe somebody can make it sexy. I've never seen it. Just because it's not a sexy thing. Desire is sexy, right? Like, wanting, craving, temptation. These things are sexy. The push and pull that happens in your own head, in your own interiority. And I, you know, I highlighted a few examples of how you did it and the fade to blacks almost that happens. How did you write those scenes? Like, did you have to add in more stuff? Did you have to pull back? Like, did you plot them? Like, tell us about that process. That's a great question. I ended up having to pull back. So when I had this idea approved, it was before We Were Never Here came out. And it was before we knew that it was going to be, you know, a Reese's Book Club pick and a bestseller. And before it was going to sort of break me out and expose me to all of these new readers, which of course is the dream. But then in the wake of that, it was sort of like, oh, our readers going to be disappointed that the next book is so different. And when I went about writing the scenes, I think I was a little too graphic on the first try because I was sort of writing them the same way that I write other scenes, which is like a movie in my head. It's like very visual. There's, you know, just you see action, you see motion, you see details. And my editor was the one who was like, you know, the scenes are hot. She was like, they're well written. But I think people who are opening this book expecting suspense want a little bit more of a fade to black and we want to pull it back a little bit. So based on that, I we had a few rounds of back and forth. She had to tell me a couple times to tone it down. And I think there's, you know, one or two scenes that are pretty front story. You know, the threesome for the very first time, of course, like the reader needs to see it because that is a huge pivotal moment. But other than that, it's a little bit more subtle. It's, you know, you see them, you know, talking in bed after the fact, or there's a fade to black as, you know, kind of the kiss turns passionate. And it was new for me to write these scenes and it was kind of scary, but I'm very happy with where it ended up. And I hope, you know, readers are enjoying it too. I, I think we tried to make it pretty clear on the back of the book that you're going to get some of that. And so it's still funny to me that some people are so shocked by the content in it. I think especially because some of it is uh, queer and this woman is sort of discovering her bisexuality that that's really not what we're used to seeing when you open up a typical domestic suspense so I hope uh, people can be open-minded and can you know enjoy that because it's I think just as you know emotional and important as those action scenes and as those scary moments it's all about intimacy and vulnerability and that's what you know makes our characters fun to watch and I had had a lot of fun doing that in past books with their scariest moments. And there's still tons of terror in this book, but there's also the vulnerability of falling for someone new and having them sort of become your obsession and your new family. And especially within a pandemic setting, it's like, 
I got to play with what happens when you're in this really close-knit, closed-door world, literally a mansion with literally a gate around it inside of a gated community, and things start to go awry within it, and you're you're both trapped and really determined to sort of believe the best about your new family and these people you really love because you're cut off from the world. Yeah, I love that you said that. I mean, I will go ahead and predict that readers will not be disappointed because I am, you know, definitely the president of the fan club and I loved it. And like, if you don't love it, you have bad taste. I'm so sorry. I'm just saying that. There is lots of terror. And I will say that the fact that her sexuality is something that she's discovering, there is very much an evolving consciousness and evolving awakening and that a lot of that has to do with the fact that you tell it in present tense so we get to find out and experience it with her it's almost like we become her right like that fusion of the brain that happens between the reader and the protagonist it's it's what we harp on all the time on our podcast and you know you obviously do it so well and while I agree it's a departure it's also like there's also so many parallels like think about it with we were never here yeah they were like doing something that was ostensibly very unsafe or at least had the potential for unsafety which is backpacking in a foreign country but at the same time even though you know the kelly and sabrina and sabrina's husband in this book are stuck inside a house it is foreign to kelly to be in that situation and so the foreign aspect the outsider aspect like that that's still there and i think that part of the terror is also elevated because so much of it is infused with desire and when we talk about active emotions on the podcast, we always say it's fear and desire conveyed through surprise. And, and that is just how to do it. There's, I have never come across a book that does it differently because at the end of the day, all emotions are either fear-based or desire-based for storytelling. And when you have both, like that's, that's extra steamy and extra fun. Okay, but you mentioned the pandemic. And again, something we get a lot here are submissions that incorporate COVID. And we talk about how tricky that can be. In this case, it's perfect. Like it's perfect because- how could Kelly be cut off from the world were it not for the pandemic? This relationship could not exist. It's not just the inciting incident, but the whole thing, the fact that they're all super secretive and it's made possible because of the lockdowns. We all remember the lockdowns. Did you always know that was going to be the case? Was that a part of the premise? Like, how did you, did you do research to infuse a little bit of details about, you know, what we were calling it at the time, how we were thinking about it? Can you tell us about that process? Absolutely. That is a great observation about the pandemic. What's really interesting is that when I first pitched this idea, it was sort of wrapped up in my own experiences. I, early in the pandemic, during lockdown, was alone in a studio apartment with my cat. So I wasn't trapped with an ex-fiance, but I was going a little bit bananas and had sort of rekindled a friendship with somebody I went to high school with who did invite me to her home with her husband and, and two-year-old outside of D.C., and spoiler, there was no thruple involved. There was no dead body, none of that. But <laughs> I did move in with them for what I thought would be a few weeks. And it ended up being four and a half months. I, I spent a long time there. And it was just interesting how if it weren't for the pandemic, this never I would never would have moved in with them. And it was really intimate. I became part of their family and they kind of became part of mine. At the same time, I was switching to, you know, Zoom therapy and I had complained to my therapist, you know, I was crying to her in a session. Like, I just didn't think in my mid thirties that I was going to be putting mate seeking on hold. And, you know, I'm just, this, this is ruining everything. And I know this isn't the biggest problem, but the, you know, the pandemic is really upsetting for this reason. And it was that summer. And you remember how that summer we 
things loosened a little bit and you could see people outside. And so she was like, you're 15 minutes from Washington, DC, like just go on some dates. If nothing else, it'll be good fodder for therapy. So I, you know, reinstalled the apps. And after a moment's hesitation, I was like, you know what, I'm going to say men and women, because it's something I had, you know, seeking. That's something I thought about doing a lot of times, but hadn't really had the courage to do. But it was like, what the hell? I don't even live here. Like everyone knows I'll put in my profile that I am paying rent in New York and just here temporarily. So I went on one date and it was with now my partner of almost three years, Julia. So I was myself, you know, discovering this totally new dimension of myself during the pandemic and, and, you know, sort of changing my sexual identity much later in life, much to my own surprise. All that said, when I pitched this book to my editor, I did not pitch the pandemic part because I'm sure you've heard this too. Everyone was like, oh, I don't want to read anything about the pandemic. I see why there's no books from the 1918 Spanish flu. Like nobody wants to read about this. I just want to move on with my life. So I pitched it without that element. And my editor correctly was like, no, the pandemic doesn't need to be, this doesn't need to be a pandemic novel. This isn't going to be about it, but it is sort of the element that made it so that if something shady was going on in a house, truly nobody would know. And if something shady was going on in a situation you were in, you literally couldn't really leave. Like there's just so many elements that make this uh, that really amp up the tension and amp up everything that you want to explore if it's set during the pandemic. So I saw that she was right and started to write it. I actually don't use the word COVID anywhere. I just refer to lockdown and pandemic and quarantine and then included a few details here and there of, you know, people having to put masks on before they do stuff and like how different it feels to be able to get drinks outside and almost pretend stuff is normal, but know that it's not. And I think because it's a sort of setting and a backdrop instead of a focus, hopefully it's going to feel, you know, not too triggering or not too jarring for people. But I totally agree that it's a real question of how much we want the pandemic to factor into the new stuff we write and whether it's going to make it feel dated or whether it's going to sort of you know, just add an interesting and very relatable element to stories that have a little extra vulnerability or fear or, you know, claustrophobia because of that pandemic or lockdown feel. Yeah, definitely claustrophobia is the the right word. So, I mean, I'm one reader, I know that, but for me, it worked really well, really, really, really well. It did not feel triggering. It felt like if anyone is listening and if you're doing this, I really recommend reading the spare room and actually highlighting, like take out a highlighter and highlight every single reference that has to do with the pandemic. Not just a literal reference, like we are in a pandemic or we are in a lockdown, but anything that has to do with masks or social isolation or wondering about, you know, when things will open up. You will not be highlighting a lot is what I'm saying because it's sprinkled in and the story has nothing to do with it, but actually the fact that it's set in the pandemic makes it plausible. I would have had a huge plausibility issue with what was happening. And also they couldn't have been spending all this time together. The intensity of their relationship, even before it became sexual, you know, because she is, I feel this is not a spoiler, but like she is obsessed with Sabrina, right? Like our protagonist is is obsessed with Sabrina, especially because Sabrina was really different in school. So again, something we talk about all the time, which is that contrast, right? Like how did that person become this person? And this is not dual timeline, of course, but 
that obsession couldn't happen without a claustrophobic setting. Like Nathan would be going to work. Sabrina is works from home, I know, but probably would be, I don't know, going to book signings or whatever, because she's a successful author. So so obviously this couldn't have happened. So really, if this is what you're thinking about doing in your story, like this is proof that you can do it. There are other books also that have done it. But this is this, I think, is the first novel I've read where it's been the reality from the beginning. And it works really, really, really well. So one thing you talked about, and I love the personal connection to your own lockdown journey, cat. Virgo. Okay. Virgo is the cat people, just so you guys know. And there's an author's note in the beginning that says author's note, Virgo is always fine. Now, like a doofus, I was like, Virgo is always fine. Is is Andy trying to tell me something about the sign Virgo? Like, is, is she a Virgo? And then, of course, when I started reading the story, I was like, oh, Virgo's a cat. And I was like, oh, thank goodness there's that note. Because I would have been, like, texting you to be like, Andy, can I read this? Because I can't read stuff where, you know, babies, her babies get hurt. There are exceptions. I read Good Rich People, and I loved it. But Tell me about that author note. Were you always going to include it? Did you include it because you thought of me? Did you include it because you thought your editor was like, Andy, people need this? What was the situation there? It's funny. You saw in the advanced copy that it said Virgo is always fine. And then I saw the issue that you had, which is that people don't know who Virgo is yet. So in the uh, hardcover, it says author's note, the cat is always fine. Fine is underlined. I wanted to be very clear. So that was not something that anyone else requested. And I personally, maybe this is my own sick mind, like I don't have more of an issue with fictional, only fictional, fictional animals being hurt than, you know, fictional humans. To me, it's all part of the same genre. I can do horror movies that include that, even though I have my own cat and dog and love them an incredible amount, to be clear. But I found that a lot of people I know who are avid thriller readers will they'll even sort of like query on you know crowdsource on twitter like is that does something happen to the dog because then i won't touch it i won't even go near it and i was like well i need to not put up a barrier where people aren't even going to start reading the book once they find out in the first page that there is a cat involved and they're going to be too scared of you know something bad happening to the cat so really the cats i'll tell you this not a spoiler the cat's not even really in danger like there is the cat is an element that is with her during the story. And I, I like including cats along with my protagonists because I feel like in thrillers, often there's dogs, but we very rarely see cats sort of realistically as part of a family or as, as you know, little animal companion. But the cat is always fine. And I was thinking of people like you who upon, you know, learning that sort of Chekhov's gun thing, we're going to be freaked out by the presence of a pet. I wanted them to not be turned off. So I requested it. I don't know if my editor or anyone rolled their eyes, but they they added the page with the author's note just for me. There are too many people like this. I know. I know because I'm not alone with this. So I, hilarious. But when I was reading this and, you know, I knew I knew Virgo was fine. I was still very much like, okay, but Virgo's going to be really fine, right? Like, promise me, promise me. She's good. And she actually is really fine, everyone. I read the book now. Everything's good. I will, I'm the opposite of you. I will read memoir. If animals get hurt, as long as I kind of know, just I prepare myself. If I don't know, it's not that I won't read it. Like educated, I read educated, you know, good morning monster. But but it's it's something that I can sort of tolerate because it actually happened. But with fiction, I'm like, look, you know, you're creating the world with people. And yeah, people sometimes do deserve to get hurt. Cause like I don't know a single person who hasn't been a jerk at least once, right? But babies are not jerks. Like babies can't get hurt. So so yeah, I am very much pro the Virgo not getting hurt. I wanted to talk to you about Kelly and Kelly's inner demon and her characterization. You know, when I read your bio, it, you you worked for psychology today and clearly, and I've also heard you speak at our retreat about 
you know, so many psychological elements of developing character. And I am a big believer that one of the reasons why these stories are so intense and enlightening and insightful and surprising and relatable, even though they're so, so like far removed from experiences, like we don't deal with murder in our everyday lives, is your psychology background. So can you tell us about that? Can you tell us about how you developed Kelly, her inner demon, her whole character arc? Absolutely. I think it would be really hard to write psychological thrillers without an appreciation for at least and a passing interest in psychology because I just think humans are so interesting and how we relate is so interesting. And, you know, our psychology is what drives us and we are reading books to sort of follow someone's drive, right? Like that's what's interesting to watch on a page and to watch people change um, in their in their whole personality, which is a psychological change, right? So I was always interested in psychology. I did a minor in it in college. And then, um, as you mentioned, I worked at Psychology Today as a news editor. I worked at Self Magazine in the what was called the happiness department, which is basically positive psychology. And it's continued to be just an interest of mine. And I often am mining sort of my own therapy for insights on the human condition and how humans relate. And sometimes she will just say something about, you know, What's an example? Relationships are really about two people's two people's coping mechanisms, like sort of bouncing, you know, bumping up against each other. And you know, she said it in the context of something I was describing, but I just thought, wow, that's such an interesting way to conceive of two people relating. And how can I use that in a book? Which is how I do all of my thinking now. So with all of my characters, a book that I really recommend for uh, digging deep into characterization is called *The Anatomy of Story* by Jonathan Truby. I will warn you that Jonathan Truby, you can tell he's very annoying and pompous and kind of patriarchal when you read it, but the book, so, so huge caveat, he does not seem like a very nice man that I would want to have a beer with, but he does have really good advice for sort of plotting out the emotional journey of your character and how to, you know, show in the relations between people, their personalities and to make it feel really rich and full. So one of the yeah core things that I always think about when I'm developing my characters and sort of learning about them from writing the first few chapters, writing the first sort of act of the book is what is, what is their big want? What is their sort of desire? The thing that they think will change everything. And then what is their actual need? What's the thing that they don't recognize needs to change, but that actually they, they need to fix in order to, you know, become a better person or become more evolved. So I'm tracking those things. I'm looking at my other characters as people who sort of take a different approach to that same problem. They're sort of different takes on a central question. And so they're set up in opposition and then that really drives, you know, scenes between them. Okay, if I have the person who thinks, you know, that this is what femininity means and it's in contrast to what my character, what my protagonist thinks, then like, how is that going to show up in this conversation? Things like that. And um, yeah, it's just really fun to, to watch the characters surprise me and do things that might seem surprising, but that actually make a lot of sense with their personality. And so I try to give them enough kind of wiggle room to become full people who whose actions make sense, even if we don't agree with them, or even if we think they're making terrible choices. And this was also a fun thing to do within the pandemic because it was such a crucible, right? Everyone's has all of this time with their thoughts and everyone's world has gotten so small. You know, Kelly talks about how the, the drawstrings of our lives have been cinched in. 
and we just have these few people around us. And so everything's going to be really heightened in terms of our personality quirks and what annoys us. And I, I think, you know, I'm always asking myself, like, what does my character want and what does my character fear? And what they want is going to, you know, propel them forward. That's that's the gas that their little car is running on. And what they fear is what I, the mean, terrible, you know, God looking down at my, or puppet master looking down at my my dollhouse or my characters, I'm going to be quietly leading them toward whatever it is they fear the most. I love knowing that so much. Okay, I want everyone at home, this is your homework now. Beginning of your story, what does your character want? And what do they actually need? And in within the actually need, what do they fear? Because probably if they're not confronting it, it's because it's coming from a place of fear. I love that so much. I kept highlighting, and I'll show you, obviously your listeners won't see, but you'll be able to maybe see in orange. I don't think you can see it on the camera. But anyway, I'm kind of like bringing my the book close to the screen and it's not really working. But I kept highlighting the verbs you kept using. They were just so specific and so unusual and oftentimes times aggressive aggressive verbs which makes sense because again thriller psychological thriller i have a writing on a line level question are you just a genius who like as you're writing the first draft these verbs just come to you and if so how did you become a genius or or is it a situation where you're like you just write and then yeah some verbs are great and some verbs maybe not so great and then you do like a pass for line levels i know all all word choices really but specifically verbs just because it's so spectacular Wow. Thank you. That is such a kind compliment. I do. I love working with verbs. I just think they're so powerful. And one of my favorite things is sort of applying verbs to situations where they don't necessarily belong. So when I write my first drafts, I'm simultaneously a clean writer, generally like the prose, I can get the words lined up the way I want them to sound. What's not working is everything else. So in my first draft, I, you know, my characters often don't have much agency, the plot's not fitting together yet, the pace is dragging. So in the sense that like, everyone has a shitty first draft, and I absolutely have a shitty first draft. But on a prose level, I think a lot of that figurative language does kind of stay the same. And I think I remember as a kid reading Natalie, Natalie Goldberg, maybe it was writing down the bones or one of them. And an activity that she had us do was write down a list of verbs that have to do with a, a, a specific action. Like I think cooking was an example and it was like, you know, boil, frost, sift, whatever. And then write sentences that, and I could be remembering this wrong, but it was something like, and then write sentences that used those different verbs. And I think an example was like the air boils with cicadas, something like that. Well, like a sentence that was a non-cooking sentence. Exactly. Like put oh, that cooking specific verb into a sentence that has nothing to do with cooking. And I remember just finding that so chewy and and fun and and just- See, you, you just know. did it again, but you did it with an adjective. I found it chewy. It's what, well, you're right, you're right. I, <laughs> I love it. See, you do I it think, naturally, you're a genius. <laughs> I do it, I don't know that I'm a genius for sure, but I do also find that like my my primary sense is touch. Like when I think about concepts and this is just how my brain works, one person told me it might be a weird sort of streak of synesthesia, but like when I think of a concept, it has a sort of emotion and a texture and a feel in my head. That's just how it resides. So a lot of me writing is just me trying to put those, put that very abstract thing that I can't even describe to you onto the page. And so I think I do a lot of like internal sensations, I go really deep onto how it feels because I am trying to explain like what I am, what's sort of spinning around in my head and, and 
bouncing off the inside of my skull and and that I can sort of imagine my fingertips against. But that said, it also becomes intentional when I I'm writing a sentence and I have to put in a verb and I can choose one that feels, you know, pretty normal, or I always want to use the one that's going to amp up the sense of just dread. I always want to use the darker one because even in a really, you know, nice, lovely, fun scene, I just think it's fun to sort of give your reader this unsettled sense that maybe they don't even notice. So, you know, talking about a bar of moonlight impaling the room or, you know, there's a scene where Kelly is cooking, you know, getting a picnic basket all ready to go. And this isn't a verb, but there's just a quick mention of her chopping beets and the knife glistening red as she tosses it into the sink. And like, it's a really nice scene. They're having a lovely conversation, but I don't want you, the reader, to forget that like you're in my hands and I have a very dark mind. So this might be a nice moment, but like, don't get too comfortable. See, this is why I love your books. I also have a dark mind and I love it. Okay. This is very exciting. I love knowing this and I love all the homework listeners. I hope you're writing down the homework. And if you're in the car, don't write down anything, please. (laughs) I have a question. You said that your first draft, you mentioned how the prose was typically more polished, but then your characters maybe didn't have agency and there were other story related things that you had to work on. Can you give us some examples of what you had to work on for the spare room? Now that I've read it all and I hope that you, if you're listening, you read it all too. It'll be really interesting to know like what needed work. It's a great question. It's always hard for me to even remember what the first draft looked like because it's so different from where we ended up. I am a pantser, much to my own chagrin. So I start with a concept and then I sort of figure out the story by writing it, which I argue is exactly the same process as somebody writing a detailed outline. I just, there's, there's meat on the skeleton of my outline because it's a draft, but we all have to go through that stage of figuring it out. Right. I, like I said, I find that there's rarely enough agency. The the plot is not being driven forward by my protagonist in the first draft because I'm so focused on figuring out the plot. And so I sort of have this like paper doll that I just keep moving into the next scene and stringing them together. And then later I have to go back and like really make sure that it's not just A and then B and then C. It's A because of A, B, because of B, C. And that my character is the one really, their decisions are the one pushing it forward. If they'd made different choices, we wouldn't end up at B and then C. So that's something I really think about later. Once I feel like sort of the general shape of the narrative is kind of in place and I kind of have those little train cars all in a line. In this book, to give some more specific examples, I just, there's a million things. I started the first copy way too early. I started it when she was still in Philly, right after the sort of breakup or or calling off of the wedding. And so there was a lot of kind of throat clearing before she actually got on the train and and started, you know, made her way down to to Virginia. Something that I added much later, really towards the end, was her reading an early manuscript of Sabrina's next book, which, you know, incorporates a third person and a triad. And it sort of, you know, opens Kelly's eyes in a different way to like, oh, this is what's going on in Sabrina's mind. I wonder if it has anything to do with me. And that was really important because she starts to become obsessed with this person who, you know, perhaps was in the corner of the triangle before her and gives it some emotional resonance when we find out that that person is actually missing. In earlier drafts, she just sort of found that out. She found out of the existence of this woman and found out that she was missing kind of in one go. And so there wasn't, it was like, so what? We, how are we supposed to care if she hasn't cared about this person yet? So those are just a couple examples. I mean, so many things change as I, I tried so many different 
especially the last half of the book when things really start to go off the rails and like at an increasing speed, it's sort of like, you know, the runaway train gets faster and faster. And I tried a lot of different weird off the wall things before ending up on this, you know, lineup of, of scenes and, and way of things shaking out. I love it so much. I love the advice about stretching it out like that. So you're right. Like, obviously I read the, the arc, so I didn't know this until you told me, but you know, we find out about I'm going to call her Taylor because Taylor is what Kelly calls her in her mind because that's the name of the character in Sabrina's book. But we find out about Taylor because of Polaroids and then we find out context and then we find out she was missing. So, you know, because you did it that way, because it unfolded that way, every single beat that I just described was a surprise. And so it delighted my brain and it added a layer. But if, you're right. If it had been in one full swoop, then I probably wouldn't have been as 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 invested. Maybe maybe that's the word. I love this so much, Andy. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask you as, as a final question, can you please recommend us a book? It can be a book that you have not read, but you're excited to read. Maybe it's in your to-be-read list. Or it can be a book that you have read and you're really, really excited about it and you want to tell the world about it. I will give you two if that's okay the first that everyone I always everyone, does this the first that I, I want everyone to read came out in February and it is my sister's amazing debut thriller by Julia Bartz it's called The Writing Retreat hopefully that's familiar to many listeners um, but it's about a um, exclusive writing retreat gone completely off the rails I think it's even more messed up than my books I would say it's a little more horror and less domestic suspense but it's so fun and really a master class in pacing and characterization my sister is a therapist so there's really a lot of psychology going on and it's a ton of fun and then one I haven't read yet but that is on my TBR is called Yellow Face and it also is set in the publishing world when a white woman is very jealous of her kind of glamorous and best-selling Asian-American author's friend's career. She, I, I don't know too many of the details because I haven't read it yet, but I know that what happens is she steals this friend's manuscript and passes it off as her own, which leads to a lot of questions of like, you know, whose stories can we tell? Is it okay that a white woman is quote unquote writing a publishing a book from an Asian American perspective? It sounds, it's a thriller. It sounds so fun, so clever, so timely, gets into so many issues that we as writers think about. So that's what I'm very excited to read, Yellow Face. Amazing. Thank you so much for this, those recommendations. Everyone, your TBR keeps increasing. If you're like me, you have no more space for your books. Thank goodness I mostly read in ebooks. But Same. even 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 so, like there's so many books that I'm not complaining. You can never have too many books or too many cookies. That is my theory. Thank I you like so it. much, Andy. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Really appreciate it. So yeah, everyone, the spare room comes out on June 20th. I know the date by heart because it's my birthday. And of course, it's totally on purpose, just like the author's note for Virgo. It is just for me because I make everything about me. Absolutely. <laughs> I had you in mind for sure. <laughs> so thank you, Andy. Thank you again, everyone. Go buy the spare room. You will love it. And if you do love it, please find Andy on social media and tag her in a review. Let me know about it too on Twitter. I love hearing from our listeners. And I, yeah, I can't wait to share my theories with you. Can't wait to hear them. Thanks so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.